The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey everyone, welcome back to Afternoons with Mike here on The Shepherd. I have on the line with me from First Liberty, Jeremy Dice. He's been with us before. Jeremy, welcome back to The Shepherd. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this situation that is now going on that you guys are deeply involved with on Monday oral arguments from the Supreme Court on the case of a coach who was fired for merely kneeling in prayer at the end of football games at the 50-yard line, Joe Kennedy. First of all, give us the background from your perspective. Yeah, Coach Kennedy comes from Bremerton, Washington. That's where he was born, and he was adopted into a family that couldn't have children. Um, that family then began to, uh, through some you know miracles of God and some assistance of science, started having kids and then decided that they didn't really need uh, Coach Kennedy anymore. So he spent really the early part of his life uh, kind of tossed in and out of the home and uh, eventually would be tossed in and out of foster care. He would spend a lot of time at group homes. He'd be the first one to tell you that he was a terrible kid. I mean, you know, hustling pool at the age of nine down the local uh, billiard shop uh, for cigarette money. Uh, doing a number of things that, uh, you know, weren't weren't horribly terrible, but weren't exactly good either. And so he spent a lot of his life, uh, by the age of 15, by the way, he was living by himself in an apartment. Uh, not exactly the best kind of apartment I've ever seen, but I don't know about you, but I wasn't living in an apartment by myself at 15. I don't he, think uh, I could have even done that. <laughs> right. He graduates high school and uh, gets into the United States Marine Corps, where he really finds the stability that he, he needed as a as a young man, and in, in the Marine Corps, in the course of his career, he, he learns to, uh, to to grow men and develop men and to lead them on a mission, uh, serves in Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And then uh, when he gets out of the Marine Corps, he returns to his hometown of Bremerton, Washington, and marries his childhood sweetheart, and she keeps on taking him, to, or at least inviting him to come to church. He just says, you know, I don't really want to go to church, and invites, 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 says no, says no, says no. Then their son says, well, look, if he doesn't have to go, I don't want to go. And that just set him off. So he said, all right, we're going. And wouldn't you know it, uh, Jesus shows up, <laughs> uh, confronts him on a number of things. They're going through a really rough patch in their marriage, and this really was an instrumental moment in their life to kind of uh, move things in the right direction. Uh, and he, he, he all of a sudden realizes kind of all the bad things he's done, and he really needs to start reinvesting in the community that he had kind of taken advantage of as a kid. Uh, and so a guy finds him while he's on a jog one day and says, hey, you should be a football coach sometimes. Like, what are you talking about? I was a wrestler in high school. I've never played a game of football in my life except for the Marine Corps, but we were just called the Bone Crushers then. So, you know, not exactly organized football. Uh, but he chases him for about a year. And the weekend he decides, okay, I think I'll do this, but let me take the weekend to do it, to think about it. He, uh, he comes across the movie Facing the Giants on the TV. Mm -hmm. And it, in his words, it was a gut punch, just like that was the clear answer that he needed to do this coaching thing. And that if he's going to do it, then he committed right there in his living room on the floor in tears. He committed in that moment to God that after every game, he's going to go to the 50 yard line, take a knee in silent prayer. Thank God for the game and the players and all that win or lose. Doesn't matter. He's going to be there. Oh, and he's a man of principle. So that's exactly what happens. He starts to do that. Uh, kids start to notice. And they say, hey, coach, what are you doing out there? He says, well, look, I'm just praying for you guys. And I say, hey, can we, can we join you? And he goes, well, look, it's a free country. Do what you want. 
And so that's what happens over a period of about uh, seven or eight seasons. Uh, these players join him. And it kind of morphs into this kind of group prayer kind of thing, sort of motivational religious talk afterwards. And then one day, the uh, opposing team compliments the school district on Coach Kenny's pressure. Like, hey, this is a really cool thing that your football program's doing. And the school district's like, what is our school pro- school football team doing out there? So they do what school districts do best. They investigated something. And uh, in the process, they discovered that uh, he was praying after the game, that there was, uh, there was uh, prayers going on in the locker room. And they said, you know what? You can't do that. That needs to stop. And Coach says, okay, I, I may have an opinion about that, but look, I, my original commitment didn't involve anybody anyway. Your rules, that's fine. I just want to be able to pray by myself. And uh, it, it kind of takes a couple of weeks for them to continue to shift the goalposts. But by the middle of the season, Coach Kennedy goes to the field at the 50-yard line again at the, at the, at the end of the tw- uh, game on October 26, 2015. And two days later, he's suspended mm. from uh, coaching football again. So, And then at the end of the season, he gets the very first negative evaluation he's ever had. And is, uh, is they put in this file, do not rehire. He's fired from, from the game. So that's a long way of telling you exactly what has gone on in this, this process. Now, seven years later, the Ninth Circuit has upheld that termination. And the Supreme Court, we're asking them to reverse that. And just two things we want. Make him a coach again at Bremerton High School and let him pray at the 50-yard line. Mm-hmm. So if he does that, if he were to come back, with the climate that we're in right now, Jeremy, do you think that uh, the school itself would be in a position to welcome him back if the Supreme Court favors uh, the coach? I would sure hope so. He, he, was a, he was a good, look, he was not an X's and O's coach, right? His, his job was to pick up a kid who was down on himself because he fumbled the ball or, or to maybe bring the kid down who was a little bit too, too, too sure of himself in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to make sure these guys were cohesive as a unit. And he did that very, very well. And he was the head coach of the JV squad, which meant that he was making sure everybody got a chance to play and were developing them, just basically doing what he did in the Marine Corps, making sure men were trained and ready to go on to the next phase of their life and the phase of battle, as, as it were. Uh, and so my, my hope would be that any school district would want to have a coach like that back on their team. And for coach's part, He's in the first plane back to Seattle as soon as the court says he can be a coach again. Isn't that something? I mean, he, he is really unfazed from all of this from the standpoint of his heart's desires to serve. And isn't it amazing that we live in such a time as this where a person can be pinged not for doing something immoral, not for cheating, not for theft, but for simply going to the 50-yard line at the end of a game and giving a quiet thanks to God for it. And for that, he's some sort of worse-than-life criminal here. It's crazy. Yeah, and what concerns me is how the Ninth Circuit, in upholding his termination, how they've expanded that as a threat now to all religious individuals who might be teachers or coaches in our schools. Because the way that the school district said it, they said, look, he's engaged in demonstrative religious activity. It's a weird turn of phrase. But his demonstrative religious activity can be seen by students, and that is sufficient to not only be an endorsement of religion in violation of the Establishment Clause, but also it's a coercion of students into this. It's kind of like this coercion by sight because he can be seen engaged in religious activity that's going to force students to be coerced into religious activity. Now, mm-hmm. I think that's bonkers, but that's exactly what the Ninth Circuit has upheld here is that if a coach or a teacher can be seen engaged in religious activity while they're on the job, then that can be sufficient grounds to terminate them from their position. So that would mean a teacher in the cafeteria, as the students walk by or are sitting at another table, 
if they can see that teacher pray over his or her lunch in the cafeteria, well, that could be grounds for termination. If a teacher wears a crucifix around her neck while teaching class, that could be grounds for termination. Uh, you could have teachers wearing a hijab or a yarmulke. Or maybe there's a coach on the sidelines as the game is on the line and the kicker is about ready to kick that game-winning field goal, crosses himself and hopes that this whole thing will come together. Well, that could be grounds for termination. I mean, it, it, you want to be really silly, but it'd be true if a teacher, if a student sneezes and a teacher would say, God bless you in the hallway. Well, I mean, that's a demonstrative religious activity that could mm. in, be in violation of the First Amendment, according to the Ninth Circuit. But nobody should lose their job for simply engaging in 15 to 30 seconds of private prayer or any other kind of religious activity. The government is, is, is not allowed to own every word that comes out of your mouth, at, even on school grounds, or every religious expression that you may have when you walk through the schoolhouse gates. You know, you made a comment about what—it uh, was a quote from the coach, actually, when his answer to those who wanted to join him— those students and those uh, other athletes, he made this statement. He said, it's a free country. Do what you want. And we're finding out today that our country is functionally, at least from the Ninth District, not as free as we think it is. Wouldn't you agree? Well, what's concerning to me is, is how broad that ruling by the Ninth Circuit is and, and how it puts in jeopardy every person of faith within the public schools. And really, it's going to drive teachers away from the job. New coaches like this out of the public schools. There was a case back in 1969 called Tinker v. Des Moines, and that was that the the, uh, the student speech case where students were protesting the national, I'm sorry, the Vietnam War by wearing a black armband. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know they said uh, famously they said in that case it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights when they walk through the schoolhouse gates. We know what that means for students because Tinker answered that case uh, that, that situation. Really, there hasn't been a case since then to fully evaluate what that means for coaches and teachers. And this may be the one that actually does that. Uh, Must teachers and coaches shed their constitutional rights when they walk through the schoolhouse gates? Or do they retain those rights even into the classroom and onto the football field? We're going to find out come the end of June. Well, this is going to be a big thing. Now, we know historically the Ninth District is, if not the most liberal, it's certainly at the top of, of the court system and the federal system of the U.S. Now, it's shifted, obviously, beyond that, and now it's landed in the final stop, which would be the Supreme Court. And with the makeup there, Jeremy, the makeup is, at least on paper, uh, leaning conservative, And from what I've read, and I'd love for your thoughts on this, it would appear that those judges that are supposed to be, at least on the conservative side, were sympathetic to the coach. Would you agree? Yeah, look, a couple of years ago, we actually brought this case to the Supreme Court, and we weren't able to—the court didn't accept it for argument at that time. They sent it back down for more development. But there were four justices at the time that said that uh, this—while they wanted to have more information about the case— this presented a, a very egregious fact pattern that really should probably be evaluated and likely is going to be uh, bad news for the school district if they had uh, if the facts bore out as they eventually did. So we knew we started with about four justices, which really means we only need one more in order to convince them to, 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 uh, to, to give us the relief that we seek for coach. Uh, but listening to the arguments on Monday, and by the way, if you haven't listened to those, you can go to firstliberty.org. You can you can listen to the entire argument. We've taped it and put it on there. Uh, very, very good argument by our co-counsel, Paul Clement. Um, if, if, uh, in the course of the questions, it became very clear to us that 
Uh, the, the justices are very concerned about the way that the school district here has treated Coach Kennedy and what that means for uh, people of faith that happen to be coaches or teachers across the country. And, and I think based on that, it, it's sometimes hard to predict the Supreme Court. But I, I think based on the questions that were asked and, and sort of the tenor of, of where things are moving, we're, we're going to see a pretty pretty important decision here quickly correcting many of the years of incorrect interpretation of the First Amendment by school districts across the country. Do you think it's safe to say that uh, this, this uh, I guess, the opposition to the coach and uh, the suit against him, uh, it, it's obviously built around the, the Establishment Clause. Uh, do you feel that there's a chance that we could have not only this case settled by the Supreme Court, but maybe some of, like you said, the questions over future egregious type of suits as this might be uh, brought back and maybe settled down a bit in this current vein of litigation that's brought against uh, conservative values? Yeah, look, the, um, th- there's a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman that has been a real pain in the backside for a lot of religious liberty issues, and mainly in the context of of uh, monuments, religious monuments or public displays that bear religion on them. Uh, three years ago, we were at the Supreme Court in a case called American Legion versus American Humanist Association. We won that case on behalf of a World War One Veterans Memorial that was in the shape of a cross. And it really did, it mostly neutered the, the, the so-called lemon test that mm-hmm. had really stood in the way of a lot of these displays. And we thought, you know, maybe 30, 40 years, that's going to be migrating over to these principles that that touch upon the Establishment Clause within the school context, including uh, prayer by coaches by themselves at the 50-yard line or maybe prayer of the loudspeaker, that sort of thing. I, I think it may have happened faster than that based upon what I heard on Monday. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think for all intents and purposes, the, the lemon test that, that has so done so much damage to free exercise and religious liberty in our country I think we're going to see that go away, if not implicitly, then absolutely explicitly. It'll be interesting to see how the justices decide this case, but it very well may be that the the, the way that we under or have understood and approached the First Amendment for most of our lifetimes is probably going to change back to what it was when the Founding Fathers wrote that mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, and, and so we're going to know more religious liberty, I think, because of this case, post-June 30th, and we've known in most of our lifetimes. Precedent is such a huge thing, obviously, in any legal case like this. And I guess one of the things that just always is unanswered in my mind, when I think about the precedent of our founding fathers, the precedent that they made by displaying things, you mentioned crucifix as being worn by some of the teachers, could be in in the day if if this passes as it is, could be uh, grounds for termination. Yet on the walls of the Supreme Court are more than ample type of symbols that these people back then, our founding fathers, believed in God and acknowledged Him, and they had plenty of those things. Uh, that argument of how can they can how can they say what they say now in the context of where they stand? Yeah, it's interesting. The Founding Fathers clearly wanted a public square that was welcoming of all faith traditions. And the purpose for that was to really allow the truth to rise to the top as sort of cream settles to the top of of the process as well. And, and, and that was clearly an Enlightenment idea that is worth its weight. Uh, but, but really, over the years, we've gotten to this point where we've walked away from that, where uh, really in the school context especially, it seems like school district attorneys are just intent on stamping out 
religion when it pops up on public school campus, as if it's some sort of, you know, sort of this virus that has suddenly shown up on campus. And if they don't, if they don't uh, inoculate it right there and then, it's going to turn into some sort of pandemic, and we're all going to get infected by it. Well, I mean, re- religion is, is is certainly better than the way that it's been treated on public school campuses across the country for for decades now. Uh, and, and so, I'm very hopeful because of this case and some other ones that we're litigating at First Liberty that uh, we're, we're going to see a greater increase in religious liberty in our country, the likes of which we haven't seen probably in most of the people who are listening to this broadcast, probably in the most of the, their lifetimes. Well, you know, this case is one of great uh, import, obviously, for that very reason. And also, it's uh, being widely watched across not only our country, but the world. But this adds to the Dodd case that the Supreme Court also heard months ago. And it would appear that the timetable for hearing on both of what could be landmark decisions uh, will be this June. And uh, any chance of it happening sooner than that? Well, there's always a chance. Yes, absolutely. But there's a lot of cases that have got to come up between now and June. So I uh, chances are pretty good that by the end of June, when they always dispose of their entire docket before they go in summer recess, that'll come out probably around the 30th of June or so. But uh, there's a lot of good cases to come out between now and then, including another case we're involved in, involving uh, the right of parents to be able to send their kids to Christian schools. So mm-hmm. it'll be uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, June will not be a slow news month, right? It's going to be a lot yeah, to report. Right. Jeremy Dice, attorney with First Liberty, thank you for being with us this morning and kind of bringing us the backstory of Coach Kennedy. That's very interesting and helpful, I think, in helping people as they pray for him, knowing what his heart is, knowing what his desire would be, that he could return to the sideline and be a coach again. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, God bless you. Once again, Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications for First Liberty, and he's also the host of First Liberty Briefing. So appreciate his thoughts and uh, on this, his second visit here with us on The Shepherd. Coming up in segments two and three, some really exciting guests that I was able to interview while at the D6 conference in Orlando recently. So we'll be right back after this break. This is Afternoons with Mike, and this is The Shepherd. With me right now is an author and publisher of Hymn Publications, H-I-M, Chad Harrington. Welcome to my program. Thanks for having me, Mike. I've really enjoyed being perched here in the uh, Resource Center at this wonderful conference, D6. And obviously the emphasis that we've talked about over the past several days here on my program has been discipleship. And that's one of the key things that you're about, you're group of uh, publishing uh, authors and, and publishers like yourself uh, put out this material for uh, people to learn and grow. Because you would think, I, I had uh, this conversation with somebody else, you would think that discipleship would be something that by now the church would have gotten down. But that's actually not the case, right? Well, it's funny that we even have to say, I publish discipleship books. For, <laughs> it's like, wasn't well, that what it's all about? Yeah. You know, and I define discipleship just simply as following Jesus. So it really is kind of broad, but the way that Hymn uh, Publications really functions is to serve the beautification of the church. So a lot of what we do is engaging people at the heart level, but also the goal is obedience. Because, um, you know, when we talk about discipleship, how do we measure it? And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll, you'll obey me. So 
the goal is love, right? He makes that clear in Matthew 22. Well, how do we measure that? Obedience. How do you mm-hmm. measure obedience? Well, it's either yes or no. <laughs> For a lot of things. Now, it's not all things are that simple, but so you know, when we talk about discipleship, it's really we're, what we're talking about is obeying Jesus. So a lot of our resources at Him Publications, pretty much all of them, are to serve the church, to resource them and give them tools toward obedience. And so we have discussion questions for almost all of them mm-hmm. um, in the books. And then um, we really think about church leaders as a primary audience. That doesn't mean you have to be on staff at a church, but someone who cares about the beautification of the church, meaning maturity and becoming like Christ. That's exactly right. And, you know, men are often looking and needing some sort of, uh, let's say, structured way of, of having this thing, the Bible, broken open in their minds. And that's what you're able to help them do through discipleship. That's the core of what discipleship's all about. But yet there, it, it's so often where people feel a little bit like they're aimlessly wandering around trying to figure out how to do this right we all need direction and it's funny you get a group of guys together or ladies i'd imagine but i'm not in those circles and it's like uh what what do we do we have to do something we can't just necessarily sit around and talk and you would think we could just crack open the bible but we really need a guide and so that's why there's leaders and um leaders want tools because they not everyone went to seminary or went you know got educated um, on how to lead people to follow Jesus by reading the word. I mean, that's kind of a multi-step process, right? Read word, understand obedience, act it out. Like we need help. And that's what yeah. I think disciple makers do. So what is your role here? Are you doing a breakout session? Yeah. So I did one breakout session yesterday and I'm doing one tomorrow. Um, the first was about, it was called the revolutionary disciple. Um, and that was about part of a project I've worked on. Um, so talking about humility at home and how important it is, how revolutionary it is to be truly humble at home and in, in order to unlock disciple making and be a disciple at home. Hmm. What's for the future? What do you see happening now? And we talked about before we began recording this chat, uh, the publishing world has gone through some major upheavals in the last 20 years. What do you see happening with books in the future? Oh, man. Well, it's interesting. When I started in publishing about five years ago, um, I had a publishing mentor named Bruce Barber. His dad published The Master Plan of Evangelism with Revel, which is, you know, one of those sure. just golden standard books for discipleship. And he told me that they thought when the Kindle ebook came out that people were going to be reading digital books by and large and print books would go out of popularity. Um, That has not been the case. 80% of books are still print, physical books. Um, I think a lot of people started off on that and found they did not like it. Yeah, we tried. And there's a use for it. I think there's a utility for that. You know, you want to go down by the beach and you want to carry your whole library, you can do it. Um, but, But so... It's interesting as a publisher and as, as a, you know, I'm, I'm trained for ministry. So as someone who thinks theologically, I can't help but think about the theology of publishing. So the incarnation, I believe, is embedded so deeply into our hunger spiritually for Christ that even physical books are a microcosm of the incarnation of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that their books are divine. What I'm saying is 
the fact that God's son took on flesh was so important to the identity and ministry of Jesus that we even in a parallel sense, we want something physical in terms of content to hold on to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We want to, like Thomas, touch the wounds of Christ and and see and behold Christ himself. So I think it's funny to even talk about it, but we we want physical books because we want the physical Christ. We do, and and there's something about holding a book that becomes dear, and a good book will become dear to its reader. And I don't know about uh, our listeners who are listening to this, but if they share this with me, but I hate to end a good book. That's the only the only thing bad about it is when it's over, and you're wishing you were uh, maybe with it for a couple of more days. And that's something that a good author is able to provide for their readers. Yeah, and it's, if we think about what we do for kids, you know, this, this is D6, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. The conference is called D6 Family Conference. And I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and an eight-month-old. And so my three-and-a-half-year-old was just potty trained last year. And we may have happened upon something brilliant, but it was really a utility when she was being potty trained which was telling stories. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've been sort of meditating on and implementing is creating a story-rich home. So you're talking about finishing a book. It's like we hunger for content, right? The human hungers for content. Well, what do we do with that? Well, we're tempted to be lazy and selfish and turn the, the boob tube on, you know, is what they used to call it, the TV. But whether we're a grandparent, a parent, whether we're single, married, whatever, God, we know that God has created in us this hunger for content. And ultimately that content is Christ. Mm. You know, he was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it became flesh and dwelt among his people. And so I, I love this idea of creating a story rich home. Um, that's something I've been talking a lot about lately. So my daughter started asking for stories when she was sitting on the potty trying to learn how to go to the bathroom. And she's never stopped. It's about a year and a half later. And all day, every, I'm not even exaggerating, all day, every day, tell me a story, tell me a story. And God's graced us with the energy to be like, okay, this is more than just potty training now. This is a paradigm shift mm-hmm. for us. So I struggle with eating too fast. Well, when my daughter asks me to tell a story while I start eating dinner, it helps me follow Jesus by not being a glutton. <laughs> And slow down. Slow down. God's like, how about having Emma as your daughter? I was like, yeah. okay. Um, but what's fascinating is, you know, thinking about the, the hunger for content, one huge form of that is story. You know, you finish a great novel. I want to, that's a good desire. And so I, I'm kind of a serious dude. I, I, I kind of focus a little bit, you know, uh, business. But God wants us to also enjoy story. And so fiction. Jesus, we don't think about this, but Jesus was a fiction storyteller. Mm -hmm. He made up stories and he made up great stories. In fact, Mark Twain said the best short story of all time is in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. So we started integrating fiction into our disciple making. So uh, Emma says, tell me a story. We have worlds of fictional stories that we tell. And, but we're, we're getting better at telling stories, but also we have her heart. Yeah. And so now when we want to share a serious story, 
or a story about God, we tell her, this is a real story, Emma. And then we can share about the gospel. And Part of sh- that has been met because you've spent the time with her and even talking and telling these stories. I had a person recently tell me something that I've not for- forgotten. He said, it's impossible to have quality relationships without a quantity of relationship. So there, that's what you've done. You've made the way, you've paved the way for you and Emma to have that kind of relationship. Well, I'm in, I'm just at the beginning stages. You can pray for me. My name's Chad Harrington. <laughs> Lord have mercy Chad. and give me grace. Yeah, That's right. You need it. Well, man, I thank you for what you're doing. I'm really excited that you guys are doing these books to help men continue to do that. For no, the men Lord. and women. Yeah, right. Men and women, both. It's wonderful. It's called H-I-M Publications. Oh, do you have a website that yeah. you can? himpublications.com himpublications.com Chad Harrington my guest thank you so much thank you yet another delightful guest from the D6 with me today Luz Galvez de Figadora yes nice to have you with us thank you it's such a joy to be with you Mike now a name like that that is so cool that uh, it represents so many things you're from Chile originally, right? Yes, yes. Now, what I loved about hearing your story, Luz, is that not only are you, were you from Chile, but you were sent as a missionary, not to America, uh, or at least not to the United States, you went to Canada. Yes, 36 years ago. Tell me about that. Yes, well, I'll tell you one story that uh, really changed our lives. We took the least expensive flight from Chile to Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, and we stopped in many places. We took the least expensive flight as missionaries, and we were so excited to finally get to Miami. We were going to be there for six hours. And my husband was so excited because we, he wanted to go to Miami Beach. So we went to the taxi driver and asked him. I said, no, you won't have enough time to come back and take the next flight. So he, we had to stay at the airport. And while we were waiting, we didn't know anybody. I mean, nobody. And we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, somebody is looking at us, and we say, okay, somebody's looking at us. She comes closer, and I can describe her like Mary Poppins, (laughs) because she had a long coat, a big hat, and a big bag. And she was, she spoke in English, and she asked us for money. She was a beggar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we try in a broken English to tell her that we didn't have very much money. We're missionaries. And secondly, we didn't have very much American money. <laughs> and so she um, went, oh. And I was sitting down. She opened her big bag and she started putting all her money on my lap. And then she closes her bag and she said, God bless you. And she walks away. And I'm telling this story because that opened our hearts to the new culture. We didn't know what God was going to do there in Edmonton. We arrived on a Thursday and Sunday. My husband is hired to work with youth in a Canadian church. And that's a journey. That's how we started. I think that's the most unique story like that I've ever heard. I mean, she's asking you for money. But really, it sounds like that was all a ruse just to be able to bless you then. Yes, yes. It was um, just God uh, using people and uh, to bless us and to open our hearts to the new culture. When you say new culture, describe what it would have been like, what were the differences for you from where you grew up in Chile 
to where, where you were experiencing this in the United States? What was the, what was the difference like? Well, uh, of course, I grew up uh, in a pastor's home. I'm a pastor's kid. I, I knew the Lord from very young, and we just wanted to serve the Lord. And, but so many differences, right? Not only the language. We had to learn English. We, my husband always said uh, he only knew good morning, good night, and he mixed them up. <laughs> and so he had to learn the language, the culture. I had to learn um, the Christian culture, if mm-hmm. you want to call it. And um, we serve in different Canadian churches, and the Lord uh, opened our opportunity to serve with INCM at, at one point. And they wanted to expand to the Latino world in the U.S. and do seminars. And um, they asked us to be the director to work on that. We traveled throughout the U.S. teaching seminars and to the Latino churches. and. We asked the churches and the pastors, what do you need? And they told us, we need resources and training. We were doing the training, but then we started investigating about resources in Spanish, and we found amazing resources. Uh, publishing companies are like incredible resources are giving, but people didn't know about it. So we started the magazine. We started the magazine called Entre Niños which means among children. So it's for people who serve children in Jesus' name. And the magazine is now downloadable. It's a free download, and it has articles in Spanish and different articles in English. Hmm. And um, it's now distributed more than 100,000 copies throughout the world. I mean, the Latino community in the U.S. represents about 22 countries, uh, not only the language, but the culture, too. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredible opportunity to serve um, children's leaders and parents that uh, speak maybe both languages. How long had you been married when you were making this move? Yes, we were nearly married when we moved, and uh, so we've been married 36 years. Oh my goodness, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. This Thank is you. wonderful. Now yes. what brings you and your husband, uh, what are the purposes for you being here at D6? Yes, I'm, uh, this is my first time at D6, and um, I'm speaking about multicultural ministry and the importance of not only uh, talking about um, a culture, uh, but also integrating the cultures, not separating, but bringing together what does it mean and how do we work with that? How do we make our, um, our churches kingdom mind, uh, you know, a little piece of heaven, of uh, you know, uh, uh, Revelations uh, 5, 9, how Jesus came to redeem us, mm-hmm. and how he redeemed every language, every nation, so just serving together, so I'm talking about that in, a, in this conference. Well, it's really great to meet you, thank and you. thank you so much for coming over. Thank uh, you. What What is your hope going into 2022, further from here? What, what will you and your husband be doing? Yes, well, with Entre Niños, we're very excited. We have the certificate program uh, with Bethel Seminary for Latino leaders, and uh, it's online, and it's completely in Spanish. I really would like that to uh, be offered to the Latino community around the world. We have students from different countries, and just, just knowing that those leaders are serving children, they're right there in their communities, and we want to equip them and give them the tools and the resources they need. It's a six-month program, and we want to expand on that. 
um, of course, the magazine. We want to expand in reaching every home. Everyone has a child in their lives. And we want, um, that is really our emphasis. We're having a conference in next month in Miami uh, for Latino leaders. And so there's a lot to do. And we want um, people to pray for us, pray for the ministry, and pray that the Lord will help us reach every child for Christ. A big special thank you to both Chad and Luz. In a moment, I'll be back with Rachel Timothy. It's all coming up on Afternoons with Mike. Here we go with segment three on my program today on this Thursday. Before we get to Rachel, I do have a couple of uh, bits of news to pass along with you. Starting on Monday, financial issues that did feature Dan Celia. As we all know, he recently went home to be with the Lord. And that program is under revision right now. And starting on Monday morning, it will go down to a one-hour program Financial Issues Live at 9.05 Eastern, and it will feature the young lady that was with Dan on so many of the programs, Shanna Burt. And that starts Monday. At 10.05 on Monday, we start having a replay of my previous day's afternoons with Mike. That's going to be on from 10 to 11. At 11 o'clock, it is going to be Dr. Stephen Rummage, and the program is called Moving Forward. And starting after the break at 11.30, it will be a second release of Saving America with Charlie Kirk. All these changes will start on Monday. We're very excited to add these additional programs for you every morning, Monday through Friday. Right now, let's go back to the D6 conference and an interview with a young lady named Rachel Timothy. I am with Rachel Timothy right now. Now, a lot of people are at the D6 conference talking about curriculum. Some of them are authors, as you are an author, Rachel, but your story is a lot different. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, my story really begins when I was nine years old, and I was tricked and groomed by my school teacher, who was also a coach, who was also an elder of the local church, and he began to groom me and then abuse me and eventually traffic me um, to people of the community. Now, so then... So that there's no doubt in people's minds what we're talking about. When you say traffic, Mm -hmm. we're talking about what is known as the sex trade industry or the sexual trafficking. I mean, it is sexual slavery. It is all of those words. And it's, it's not happening just in foreign countries. It's happening right in the cities of the United States. In fact, it's happening right in Florida on a regular basis. Um, Statistically, it's happening in every zip code in America. Um, So, yeah, part of my trafficking was pictures and videos that were sold for a profit. And then part of it was I was sold to men for sex at a small country house. And as I got older and I had time to sit down with the FBI and explain to them my story and I told them about this little house out in the country where I was and the the things that happened there they told me those little country houses they're the the brothels in America that people don't know exist yeah I I believe that with all my heart I really do and your story it's intriguing uh it it is it's so sad how often this story happens yes sir and just like what happened to you a lot of parents today of kids, their kids are being trafficked and they don't know it. Right. And so my dad was a preacher. 
I was involved in the church very heavily, but because of the shame that was put on me, I thought I was the dirty one. You know, I, yeah. I thought that it was me who was the problem. And so for a long time, I didn't want to speak up for that reason. I thought I would not only shame myself, but my family. Mm-hmm. And then when things got worse and, you know, I did things like I started, I started cutting, I started having suicidal thoughts. Um, I had so many flashbacks, but things that didn't always make sense because I was a kid. You know, when a kid tries to tell you all these awful things that are happening, they're not going to be able to tell you A to Z, this is what just happened to me. It's just bits and pieces of what they can make sense of. And so when I did finally come forward and, and start to tell people, I wasn't believed. Are you kidding me? No. Oh, I'm so sorry, Rachel. Yeah, it took years and years before people finally believed me. And now there's more coming forward about the same person, and, and it's starting to make headway. But, I mean, trafficking was not talked about back when I was going through it. It is starting to now. Um, but it, it's been happening for years and years. It's a, it's a huge issue that is hidden, and people, they don't realize it. Now, your own experience... You said you were approached, and and that process began before you were even 10 years old. Yes, sir. And how long from that point until they were basically uh, putting you with men? How long did that happen? Um, Probably about six months was the process. So, uh, again, as a 10-year-old, you're being given to men for sexual services. Yes. See, I think a lot of parents... They need to hear that yeah. because it's shocking and it is not the kind of things that a lot of people like to hear. Right. But until we get ready as a culture, as a society, and I believe it starts with the church. Yes, I un- do too. Uh, until we are ready to hear that this is happening and it's now you, why I so appreciate you, Rachel, is that we've heard these stories. We hear them. Uh, I interview lots of people who are in the sex trafficking business And so often, I think even for people who are listeners to those stories, they, they, because they don't have a face to go with the name, they don't have a person to substantiate the story, they they really have a hard time believing it is as bad as it is. Right. But you were living in that complete sense of hell right here on earth. Yes. And there's so many other stories just like mine. I mean, I have a friend that I met at a safe house who... Another 16-year-old girl is who got her into it. She was 16. A friend of hers at high school uh, talked her into going to a house to make some quick cash. She didn't know why, and she ended up being sold and raped and then was forced to sell herself every weekend, or this guy was going, he told her, to hurt her family. She didn't feel like she had a choice. And then it got to the point where he didn't have to threaten her anymore because she became so broken, so addicted to drugs herself, feeling worthless, he didn't have to threaten her. It just became who she was. And that's well, the sad reality. It's like what you said earlier, too, when they consider they meaning people who have gone through this sad scenario, uh, they, they've they stopped believing that they are worth uh, saving. Right. Uh, in, in ter- that's just, it sounds terrible. It is terrible. It is terrible. But you also know that Christians are out there watching pornography. And so it really, I mean... 90% of the women on pornography videos don't want to be there. And so Christians think, you know, it's this hidden sin. No, it's fueling sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And for a survivor who knows that these same Christian men who are watching the videos where you just got raped, 
are also attending churches, it really gives you a hard time understanding God and where he is in all of it. And so I think that's a hard part for survivors to understand. I think a second thing that we need to, to all of our listeners right now, that we need to get our brain around is that not only was this a situation of a nine-year-old being uh, brought into this lifestyle and this horrible world, but then your own folks did not believe you initially. So you had to deal with that sense of rejection and maybe the humiliation of of saying something that actually had happened and then not be believed. Well, because the perpetrators will confuse you anyway. They'll tell you nobody's going to believe you if you say anything or they'll think it's your fault. And so you have that in the back of your mind. And then when you do start to tell and people show that they don't believe you, 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 what the perpetrator initially said, that you're too dirty to believe, you believe it about yourself. Wow. Okay, Rachel, help our listeners out. What are the telltale signs that a, 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 could be a grandchild mm-hmm. uh, or it could be a son or daughter? Yeah. What are the telltale signs that our listeners can hear from you and be on the lookout for? You know, so a lot of people will tell, uh, well, they'll talk about stranger danger and, you know, they'll ask their kids, has anybody ever hurt you? Well, if somebody would have asked me, was your coach hurting you? I would have said no because I loved him. I was groomed, all those things. But if somebody would have asked me, who makes you feel special? Who spends a lot of time with you? Those types of things, to me, are telltale signs. There's no reason why an adult man should want to spend time with a little girl as much as he did. And so that's a huge red flag. Um, Also, then there comes a point where you cannot hide that brokenness any longer. And so, again, my signs of cutting, of being depressed and having suicidal thoughts. Those Those should not be ignored. No. And I was told I was attention seeking. Well, in a way, I was. I was crying out for help because the pain I was feeling, I felt hopeless in. Yeah, sure. Naturally. Yeah. How could anyone not feel that that sense of hopelessness? But now, a couple of questions. The person that did this, the coach yes. that did this, mm-hmm. is he still free? He is currently an elder of a church and leading worship music. Now, I guess a question that all of my listeners are going to want to have answered, mm-hmm. how is that the case? So we did a huge investigation at one point, and I... When all of my memories came together, I, you know, I went to the police and they did a raid on his house. And as I knew they would, they found child porn. Well, a month later, the evidence that FBI had went missing. And it is gone. And I had several officers tell me they don't know what happened, but it's gone. And because of that, the case was closed. And now there's been other women who've come forward with similar situations with the same guy but it doesn't matter. The case is closed. Now, what I believe is whoever was on that thumb drive of child porn probably didn't want to be seen, and all of the evidence was taken away. Wow. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened, and and I know that I speak for everyone who's hearing this. It's heartbreaking to realize that, number one, that this stuff exists, Mm -hmm. but again, when you hear that it, it not only exists, but it it happened to a nine-year-old victim that grew up and, and uh, had to then endure whatever time it was until you got help. And how old were you when you had, let's say, the first glimmers of hope? How, how long did that take? Well, so he left me alone after my eighth grade year. So it went on for several years. 
Um, but I wouldn't talk about it, and I my mind wouldn't even let me go there. So at we're talking first. seven years minimally. Then. Yes, yes. And so it wasn't until I was then 28 years old, and I had be- been held captive. I didn't realize how much mentally and physically and emotionally I was still held captive by all that happened to me as a child. And so I've been doing a lot of therapy, a lot of work, and I would say hope maybe within the last six months. Really? Yep. God has really transformed my life, and I literally want to shout from the mountaintops what he has done for me. So my first book that I wrote is Open Blind Eyes, and it's my story, and it's where God was in the midst of a nine-year-old being sold for sex. But I'm working on my second book, and this one is going to be about redemption and hope and the way that God has just transformed my life into a way that I never could have thought possible. Life well, after trauma. I am so thrilled you're with us today on The Shepherd. Thank you. Thank you. you, you just even your uh, the countenance that you have, it shows that God has done a real work in your life. But I'm really, really grateful for the hope that he's filled your heart with. Thank you. I, that means so much. Well, I really mean it. And I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, the Bible talks about, and I used this in an earlier interview here at D6, the Bible talks about we overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Yes. And so that is your hope right there. First of all, first and foremost, because Jesus loves you. And he died for you, sacrificed for you, and to, to make you his own. Yes. But then your testimony is powerful. And it, I, I just want you to know that I believe God's going to use your testimony in ways you just would never have believed back all those years. Thank you. So let's let's just trust God for that. Thank you. That's Thank my hope and prayer. Give us your the name of the book okay. and how people can get a hold of it. Yes, so Open Blind Eyes by Rachel Timothy, and it's sold at any bookstore, Amazon. You can find it pretty much anywhere if you look for it. And then if you are interested in, I'm doing workshops, I'm doing speaking events, I can speak on raising awareness about how sex trafficking can impact your kids, how it can impact the church. Also, life after trauma. I'm doing workshops with survivors of trauma and getting their life back. So you can contact me at openblindeyes at protonmail.com is an email that you can reach me at. Okay. Now, what part of the country are you coming from? Tennessee. Tennessee? What part of Tennessee? Nashville. Oh, I love it. Yep. That's great. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad you're here, Rachel. Thank you for coming by and being with us. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. What an amazing testimony. That's Rachel Timothy. Special thanks to all my guests today on the program. I'll be back tomorrow at 3.05. Hope you can join us then for our Friday program right here on The Shepherd.